Good morning. And it is a good morning. The mercies of God are new every morning. I still miss you. Uh, <laughs> miss all of you more and more as each day passes. Uh, and I continue to pray that we can all be together soon. In the midst of all the physical limitations that we're all experiencing right now, it continues to amaze me to watch how God is building friendships and, and doing practical works of service through so many <clears throat> in the body at Community Bible Chapel. In fact, I'm, I'm not sure of this, but it looks to me like our interactions with each other and our care for one another has been ramped up a notch in the midst of all of this, and I suppose that's as it should be. Um, God is impacting many lives through this, uh, this crisis that we're seeing right now. That's how he does things, and that's part of what we'll consider this morning. <clears throat> I thank all of you who have been praying for my and my wife's dear neighbor um, and friend. He's not doing well at all. He's been on a ventilator now for 14 days, and it's taking a very heavy toll on his body. Um, we ask that you'd continue to pray. Let me, uh, let me pray right now as we uh, prepare to go to God's Word. Loving Father, we come once again to the Word of the Lord to meet with you, the Lord of the Word, the one who has revealed yourself to us so marvelously. We ask that you would show us your heart and your way, that you would bring us again into the treasure trove <laughs> of all that belongs to us in Christ so that we will see things as they actually are and we will rightly interpret and respond to what's going on right now in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I have, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. In Acts chapter 28, the apostle Paul was bitten by a venomous viper. By God's protection, he suffered no ill effects. <laughs> so has God promised that he'll do those kinds of things for Christians all the time as long as we're faithful? Will God protect Christ's followers from serious physical harm if we're serving him well? Earlier this month, actually in, in March, mid, around mid-March, some churches defied orders from local authorities to temporarily halt uh, large gatherings. More than one preacher at more than one church, told his congregation that if they would come to Sunday services, God would protect them from COVID-19. One pastor even encouraged his parishioners when they came together that Sunday morning to shake hands, telling them that church was the safest place they could possibly be. Now, were those pastors accurately representing God's promises to his people? If so, 
That would be big news to the 46 men, women, and children who were shot by a mass murderer during their church service in Sutherland Springs, Texas, in November of 2017. 26 of them died. It would also be big news to the Apostle Paul, who recovered without incident from that venomous snake bite by God's doing. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll find a laundry list of suffering that Paul endured precisely because he had been faithfully following Christ and acting as Christ's ambassador. And that's the same Paul who eventually had his head removed by a Roman executioner because he wouldn't stop faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what can we actually count on as the children of God when it comes to God's protection during our time here in these mortal bodies? Well, my title for this morning's message is What Will and What Won't Happen to Christians According to God. This is part two of a four-part series of messages that's titled Making Sense of a Pan Pandemic. God has not been silent. Our central passage this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 39. We'll read the passage one section at a time as we proceed. The first thing I'd like to consider this morning is what God says will happen to his people here and now. And by here and now, I mean during our very short lives here in these mortal bodies. Listen as I read Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of, adoptions, of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that me, so that we may also be glorified with him. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul assures us in those verses that we will suffer with Christ. And that the glory part won't come until after the suffering part. <laughs> now, we might be prone to think that the suffering he's talking about, the suffering that we as Christians will share with Christ, is the persecution that some Christians receive from people who have rejected Christ. But if we keep reading the passage, it becomes evident that the sufferings Paul is talking about cover a lot more ground than persecution alone. He's also talk, talking about the suffering that's experienced by all mankind and all creation because of the curse that God decreed in the Garden of Eden. When Adam first sinned, God imposed the curse of death on mankind and on the domain that he had entrusted to mankind, the earth. That curse on, on the earth extends to all of creation, and the curse on humanity extends to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. 
on this earth. Now you might be thinking, except one, but bear with me. Listen as I read verses 19 to 23. Verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So right after saying that we who belong to Christ must share in Christ's suffering before we share in his glory, Paul then speaks four times of the suffering experienced by creation before he mentions our suffering again. All creation groans under the curse that God imposed on it because of us. <laughs> in a word, that curse is the curse of death. It has many manifestations, everything from the lousy drainage in your backyard to mudslides that take out entire neighborhoods, everything from mosquito bites to snake bites, everything from dust devils to F5 tornadoes, and everything from inconvenient 24-hour flus to global pandemics. All of these are temporary, earthly outworkings of the curse of death, which God himself imposed on all of creation because of our sin against him. And Paul says that the grand event for which all creation is eagerly waiting, the event that will end all of that misery, is the revealing of the sons of God. And when that event happens, creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, when we are finally set free from our slavery to physical decay and death into everlasting freedom from sin and from every vestige of the curse of sin, all creation will be set free at the same time right along with us. The domain God put under our stewardship will be liberated from the curse when we are fully, liber fully and finally liberated from the curse. In verse 23, Paul describes that same glorious day as our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in case you were wondering, <laughs> Even we who are the redeemed of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we who have already crossed over out of death into eternal life, are still occupying unredeemed bodies. Just like the mortal body that Jesus inhabited when he was here. You know, the one that died. When Jesus came from heaven to earth and took on our humanness, in order to save sinners like us, he placed himself 
under his own curse, the curse that he had decreed. Now, I've heard some well-meaning Christians insist that Jesus could never have been under the curse the way we're under the curse, but that's just wrong. Certainly, Jesus never sinned, but he most assuredly suffered and died under the curse of our sin. That was the reason he had to go to the cross. When we who belong to Christ complain that we have to experience illness and aging and weakness and physical death just like unbelievers, <laughs> we would do well to remember this. The Son of God who left the glories of heaven to save sinners like us suffered in our place the full and eternal weight of the curse that we all deserve so that we who believe in him won't. The reason that Jesus could pay our eternal debt in a single day is because he is the infinite, eternal, and sinless Son of God. His suffering in our place makes our suffering nothing by comparison. But his suffering under the curse of our sin uh, did not begin when he was arrested the night before his crucifixion. His suffering began the moment he was born into this, into this cursed world. If you're looking forward to, uh, like I am, to one day being delivered from this body of death, as Paul describes it, uh, and from this dying world into the glories of God's dwelling place, just imagine for a moment what it must have been like for the creator of all things to do life for 33 years in the wretched company of people just like you and me on this cursed earth that we walk around on every day. Beloved, that was suffering. Jesus suffered under the curse every day of his earthly life to the point of death on a cross. But he suffered something infinitely greater than any believer will ever suffer. He suffered the abandonment of his Father for our sakes. He became, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we whom he has saved must and will share in the temporary part of the curse that Christ suffered up to the point of his death on the cross. And we will share in that suffering before we share in his glory. There's no way around it. So where and when and for how long must we who belong to Christ share in the sufferings of Christ? Well, Paul tells us right in the passage that we just read without flinching. <laughs> and the answer to where, when, and how how long, excuse me, where, when, and how long we are to suffer is right here, right now, and until our glorification day. And unless we happen to be still standing uh, the day that Jesus returns, the end of our suffering under the curse will come after our physical death. Now, I want to make sure that we're all hearing this. 
For you and I who trust in Jesus, our participation in his suffering will last until we die physically. It will not end until then. The servant is not greater than his master, and our master suffered every day that he had to endure living on this cursed earth among people like us. That suffering was not finished until the mocking and torture and death that Jesus experienced before the cross and at the cross. His resurrection from the dead sealed his victory over sin and over the curse of sin. And then, at his ascension, he returned to his rightful glory. And that sequence of events tells us what we need to know about our suffering. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings that we must experience are right now, in this present time, and the glory is not. The glory is not. And that's exactly the point that Paul makes in verses 24 and 25. He says, For in hope we had been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. <laughs> for who hopes for what he already sees? He's saying, He's saying, if you've already got your hands on something, you're not still hoping for it. You got it. He says, that's not the way our hope works as Christians. And then he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. We eagerly wait for it. See, Paul says, we do not yet have the glory that God has promised to us as his children. Our best life is most assuredly not now. <laughs> and what do we have until, until then? Uh, we have life under the curse until physical death. Now, don't worry, I'll get to the good part of what we have now in a minute, but, but don't rush that. Don't miss what I'm talking about here. You and I need to get this part Right. If you are a child of God, some amazing things happened when God brought you to faith in his son. He freed you from the eternal penalty of sin and from the controlling power of sin. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit and he promises you that you will dwell with him and with his redeemed forever. But brothers and sisters, Right now, you and I still dwell in unredeemed bodies on an unredeemed earth. You and I who belong to Christ are no longer under the curse of eternal death. In the first verse of the same chapter, Romans 8, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you and I are most certainly still under the curse of physical death, along with all that comes with it. And from one angle, one angle, that certainty that your physical body is going to die is actually very good news. How would you like to live for the next 100,000 years in this mess and just be getting started? <laughs> 
And please hear this part as well. It is good and right for us to pray for God's relief from the worst of the, of, of the temporal curse, of the temporary curse, especially for others. If anyone thinks that God doesn't care about our suffering in this life, uh, he hasn't paid much attention to the gospel accounts in which Jesus healed countless people of all kinds of physical affirmities, infirmities and, and afflictions. But those healings, beloved, were relentlessly purposeful. They were signs. And their purpose was to demonstrate that Jesus was the one who will heal all our infirmities forever. Just as the prophets declared, he is the one who, who won't merely lessen the impact of the curse, but who will do away with the curse entirely for all who trust in him. But we have to wait for that. God promises us that we will share in the sufferings of Christ under the temporary effects of the curse. And, and this is important too, and I know I'm repeating myself, but this is so critical. God makes no promise to us as his children that we'll suffer any of those temporary effects of the curse any less than unbelievers will. I want to make sure you heard that. It's not my opinion. It's biblical fact. God makes no promise to us as his children that we will suffer any temporary effect of the curse any less than unbelievers will. And if you're looking for a smooth Christian life, it's actually worse than that. Because belonging to Christ does not shift worst-case suffering down to mid-case suffering. It makes worst-case worse in a couple of ways. In 2014, when the, the largest and most lethal Ebola outbreak in history occurred, a medical missionary, a physician named Kent Brantley, was working in Liberia as part of the medical branch of Samaritan's Purse, the Christian relief organization that's headed by Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham. Liberia was the epicenter of that outbreak. Nancy Reitbull, a co-worker of Dr. Brantley's at the same facility in Liberia, was a medical missionary with SIM. Now, before I go further in this story, I want to make sure you know that the survival rate for Ebola is roughly 50%. It kills half of the people that are infected. And most who do survive the illness suffer permanent and serious damage to major organs and body systems. Dr. Brantley and Ms. Wrightbull were both fully aware of those realities as they and their team remained in place, working almost around the clock to save the lives of people that they were there to serve. In spite of the best efforts of that medical team to guard against infection, both Dr. Brantley and Ms. Wrightbull became infected, roughly one day apart. They were both medevaced to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, where they received aggressive and very innovative treatments that had never been used before on humans. They both survived and recovered well. Dr. Brantley serves today as medical missions advisor for Samaritan's Purse. I vividly remember 
a one-on-one -on -one interview with Dr. Brantley that was aired on a national news program sometime after all of those events. I don't remember what channel or network it was. I don't remember who the reporter was, but I vividly remember what Dr. Brantley said. The interviewer asked him if he believed that it was his faith that healed him. He said, no, in a very real way, my faith is what gave me Ebola. Faith is not something that makes you safe. See, being children and ambassadors of Christ means that we have to go toward the fire, not away from it, in order to extend the love and compassion of Christ to others on his behalf. We're called to be right there in the trenches of life with those who suffer. And that inevitably brings greater suffering to us during our short mortal lives. And again, if we're looking for smooth or comfortable Christian lives, the reality is that it's actually worse even than that. Because we who belong to Christ are also called to share in the reproaches of Christ. We're commissioned by God to speak the truth of Jesus into a world that hates him. <laughs> and Jesus assures us that that means the world will hate us too. That's not fanatical paranoia. That's a promise from the Son of God. John chapter 15, starting at verse 17, Jesus said to his disciples, This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. A few verses later, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then he said, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Jesus is saying, You need to know these things so you'll stay on the right path. He says, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Okay, so let's, let's put this together a little bit. Here are some things that God says will happen to us who belong to Christ during our short earthly lives. First, we will share in Christ's suffering under all of the various temporary effects of the curse, along with unbelievers. That includes the curse of living in unredeemed, dying bodies, as well as the curse of living on an unredeemed, dying earth. 
Secondly, we will be drawn into even greater suffering than most, because we're here to represent Christ in the world, and that, that includes loving and serving and being alongside those who are suffering. God may or may not choose to protect us from certain aspects of that suffering some of the time, but he's made no guarantee to, to his children of exemption or reduction of the temporary effects of the curse all the way to the point of physical death. Finally, we will share in the sufferings of Christ at the hands of sinners who hate Christ. And since the way is narrow and fewer are those who enter by it, that means most people will be against us and not with us. If we speak the truth concerning Jesus Christ into, the, into the, a world that hates him, they'll hate us too. And they may even kill us for proclaiming Christ. But that's not all that God says will happen to those who trust in Jesus. Listen to Romans 8, verses 26 to 28. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, while we're here suffering the effects of the curse and the effects of sinners' hatred against Christ, God makes us a couple of exceedingly powerful promises. The Holy Spirit will inhabit our prayers to God. Even when we don't know how to pray, even when we're at our wit's end, even when we cannot find the words to express what we long to express to God, the Spirit does express those things. And, and God will cause everything that happens to us and everything that happens, period, to work together for good to us who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and what is that good that he's doing? Verses 29 to 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul treats it as if all that's already been done because that's how certain it all is. The good that God will bring about through everything that happens in his creation, including pandemics, is the complete and perfect salvation of all whose names he has written in the Lamb's book of life. He'll use even the curse itself to bring his children all the way from first belief to our glorious freedom from every residue of the curse to dwell in his presence forever. That's what God is doing through our suffering here and now. He is, he is saving to the uttermost those whom he has given to his son, and he's bringing more and more people into that number day by day 
the suffering and the outcome are both guaranteed. But what does God promise won't happen to us during our time here under the curse? First, in verses 31 to 34, no accusation against us will ever stand before the throne of God. No accusation against us will ever stand before the throne of God. Verse 31, what shall, then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a, char a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. See, Jesus paid our sin debt in full at the cross, and he was raised from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of his Father as our perfect advocate. Every accusation that men or demons or Satan himself might utter against us carries no weight at all in the presence of God because every accusation against us has already fallen on Christ and has been paid in full. <laughs> it's marvelous to realize those accusations aren't any surprise to God because they're true. But he put them on Christ. He put our, he put our debt and our guilt on Christ and Christ has paid it in full. No accusation against us will stand before the throne of God. And secondly, nothing and no one will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the preeminent promise of this passage. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a promise. What a promise. See, according to that passage, we will, we will experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. We will face perils from things present, things to come, powers on earth, powers in the angelic realm, heights, depths, and from every other created thing. And we will face even the peril of death itself. The death of our physical bodies. People calling themselves Christians have sold millions of books and filled huge churches to capacity with people eager, eager to hear that God will protect faithful Christians from all such perils, or at the very least, will put a hard limit on how much of those kinds of things 
can touch us. But the problem is, those preachers and the people who, who fill their churches are holding God to promises that He never made. And that's a, And what makes that such a terrible shame is that they're treating as insufficient the glorious and magnificent promises that He has made to us as His children. And the very greatest, the very, the very heart of those promises is that nothing and no one in all of God's creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've said twice in two weeks <laughs> that you and I who belong to Jesus have been handed an extraordinary opportunity in the midst of this present global pandemic. See, we're the ones who already possess the peace that surpasses all understanding in Christ Jesus. And we get to tell other people that they can possess that same untouchable, unassailable peace if they will simply put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. But beloved, if we're saying the same things about this present situation that everyone else is saying, then we're throwing that opportunity away. We're turning our backs on our God-given assignment. If we're telling each other and the world that we'll finally get to stop worrying about our well-being and the well-being of those we love when this calamity is finally over, when we can all get back to work and back to our predictable incomes and back to being around other people without having to wonder if they're going to infect us with something that could kill us, if that's what we're saying, then we have abandoned our assignment from the living God. See, what, what we get to say to everyone who will listen and to everyone who won't is that it is exceedingly well with our souls because Jesus gave us eternal life when we deserved eternal death. Try saying that to someone who's struggling with this issue, even to someone you've never met before. When they ask, how are you doing? Say, well, Jesus gave me eternal life when I deserved eternal death, so I'd say I'm doing pretty well. I've done that before. I've gotten some really amazing responses. And if you want to see Christians get smoked out of the woodwork, say something like that. If someone says to you, how are you and your family coping with this mess? How about if you said something like, well, it's made things a lot more complicated than usual, but, but God is using all that complication and hardship to do amazing things in our lives and in the lives of people all around us. There are people who are dying from this virus, and they may be people very close to you, but beloved, God is doing amazing and eternally powerful things right in the midst of this. And if we say that to people because it's true, they might actually ask you what those things are. If I get COVID-19, and I don't want it, thank you, I pray that God will stir my soul to say to you what my beloved mother-in-law 
Virginia Obrey said to me when she was dying from complications of Parkinson's disease. One day when I was, I was driving her back from uh, a, a physical therapy session at Landry Center downtown, and it had been a really hard day for her. Uh, and I asked her something about kind of how she was doing and echoing the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians, she said, Therefore, I do not lose heart, that though my outer man is decaying, yet my inner man is being renewed day by day. She, she had her very reliable smile on her face when she said that, and I knew that she meant it to the core of her being. She believed it, absolutely. In the very next verse, verses of that same passage in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison." while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. My brother Nathan Dula pointed out to me recently that that passage does not say that the things that happen to us in this mortal life will appear to be momentary or light if we're comparing them only with what we see here. In fact, they may look horrific if that's the only point of reference that we've got. What makes us know that they are momentary and light is the eternal weight of glory that God has laid up for us in his presence. And where are you going to come to behold that? Where are you going to know about that? There's only one place, guys. You have to come to the word of God. Things which I have not has have not eyes have not seen. Sorry, let me start over. Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, and He's done so through the Word. That's in First Corinthians chapter two. You and I have the marvelous task on this earth of being God's instruments to replace temporary earthbound hope with eternal Christbound hope in the hearts of men and women and children by simply inviting people to come and meet Jesus, to behold him and calling them to trust in him. Let's do that task with great joy. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you from the curse that we all deserve, then the full eternal weight of that curse is still on your shoulders instead of on Christ's shoulders. But if you take God at his word, if you agree with him that you deserve the full measure of his wrath against sin, and if you trust in Jesus' perfect sacrifice that paid that debt in full, the only part of the curse that you'll ever experience will be the temporary part. And God will free you right here and right now from both the condemning penalty and the controlling power of sin. 
And then very soon, he'll free you from the very presence of sin and of the curse and bring you into the glory of the children of God to dwell with him and with us for all eternity. Pray with me. Dear Father, teach us not to cling to promises that that you have not made when the promises that you have made are so precious and magnificent. Turn our minds and our hearts to all that you have graciously given to everyone who trusts in Jesus. Teach us to rejoice, not that demons or snakes or pandemics submit to us, because those things only happen when you determine to make them happen. Teach us to rejoice instead in that which is sure and certain, that our names are written in heaven because we trust in Jesus. And give us eyes to see the multitude of ways that you are using even this terrible part of the curse to turn even our own hearts more fully to you, where we will find all that is life indeed. We pray this in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen. God be with you.